Welcome to the NASA and Silicon Valley podcast, episode 65. Joining me again today for the intro, we have Kimberly. Hey. Uh, Kimberly, tell us about our guest, or actually more like guests, plural, <laughs> for the podcast today. No problem. Uh, basically, we have with us Bron Nelson and Dimitri Miniminlis, who join us from the NASA Advanced Supercomputing Facility here at Ames. Yeah, and this is a, a slightly different episode from what we normally do um, through the magic of fiber optic connections. Uh, we had Braun here in the studio, but Dimitri was actually sitting over at JPL over right. in Pasadena. Right. So yeah, so Braun, a computer programmer here at the NASA Data Analyst Analysis and Visualization Group, he specializes in most of the coding that mm -hmm. happens with our supercomputers. Whereas Demetrius, uh, he's a research scientist at JPL, where he actually studies and uses the supercomputing capabilities to analyze global ocean circulation and its interaction with sea ice and all the cool oceanography that happens to be displayed on the hyperwall here at Ames. Yeah, this is a really cool thing about over at NASA. You always think of space, but you know, as it comes to supercomputing, it's like Everybody uses the supercomputers. It's right. like no matter what they're studying. Right. And it's great because the visualizations are very helpful in investigating the data that they come with, uh, you know, that comes apart from actually using the supercomputers. Yeah, and I got a kick out of this one because, like, typically, you know, being NASA and Silicon Valley, we talk about ourselves. Mm -hmm. But, you know, ha this is this was a, a situation where we have a different NASA center who's using the information. And this is like this is typically how this works. You have right. other centers, other groups, all working together. But before we go too much into the podcast as a little, or into the episode, uh, a little bit of housekeeping. We would love for your comments and suggestions. Um, you can leave us a review on iTunes, Google Play, Music, uh, wherever you find the podcast. If you want to participate or uh, just send us your thoughts, reviews, ideas, we are using the hashtag NASA Silicon Valley. We have a phone number. Uh, so <laughs> that's 650 four zero zero give us a call we'd love to hear your thoughts and we'll see how we can integrate that into an episode but for today here's braun and dimitri welcome dimitri welcome braun hello so for folks listening, yeah, this is a little bit different because I'm sitting here talking with Braun in our studio and we have Dimitri on the line or through the magic of the interwebs from JPL um, coming and chatting with us. So we haven't done this way before, so this should be a fun time. Yeah. But so Dimitri and Braun, um, we always like to start the podcast with, uh, with the same question and it's how did you join NASA? And for Braun, I always I would say like like how did you end up in Silicon Valley? But in this case, since we're this is more NASA California, I'd say <laughs> what brought you to the Golden State? So Braun, okay. go well, ahead, man. I actually grew up in Livermore, just, just okay, uh, local, 30, 40 miles uh, east of here. I was actually born in Kansas, but I moved family moved out here when I was like two, so uh, I'm almost nice. a native. <laughs> But I was uh, working for a variety of companies. I mean, mm -hmm. I'm a computer person, and okay. I worked for a number of different companies. I was working for a firm named Silicon Graphics, and was assigned okay. here on site at NASA Ames to help with because they had bought a number of our computers. And then after the company and they pulled you in, <laughs> after Silicon Graphics went bankrupt again. 
and cut my salary again. <laughs> uh, I just, even I could see the handwriting on the wall at that point, and so I uh, jumped ship, as it were, and went native, as they say in the biz, and started working for the customer that I was previously supporting. <laughs> so that's how I ended up here at Ames. Nice. So you're always into computers, not necessarily. I mean, NASA people are always thinking rockets, and you know, uh, you know. Sp- Base probes and stuff. So, but yeah. you're always into the computers, and so that's how you came into this. That's right. I mean, as I, as I like to tell my kids, I'm not a rocket scientist, but I work with rocket scientists. Exactly. So, uh, I know almost nothing about the physics involved, or I mean, Dimitri here works on the uh, ocean modeling. I don't know anything about that, but I know <laughs> a lot about computers, and so I'm often a member of a team of people work, and I help deal with the computer problems that come up. <laughs> it is teamwork that makes the dream work. All right. <laughs> So, Dimitri, talk what a about horrible thing. I know. <laughs> yes. Um, you know, I actually I, hope... <laughs> I got that from from your neck of the woods, Dimitri. I think I heard it somewhere. I was walking around in in L.A. I don't know if I was visiting Disney or DreamWorks what did or you something. Hear? What did you hear? <laughs> well, somebody said teamwork makes the dream work. <laughs> yes. Well, okay. My story. Uh, what I find really amazing, and I don't know if it happens to everyone, but as you grow up, the dreams that you dreamed as a kid that get realized are the ones that you really remember. So I'm sure I had tons of dreams when I was a kid, <laughs> but uh, there were three of them that I remember and that have been realized, and that's pretty amazing. When I was six, it was 1969, and uh, we gathered around. The neighborhood TV. I was. I grew up in Greece, so uh, TVs back then were not very. Uh, did not exist. Uh, not every house had one. My my grandparents happened to have one, so a lot of people gathered and we watched the astronaut, the first astronaut land on the moon, and that that was like super big impression on me. And of course, a lot of kids who watch that wanted to be astronauts. I'm glad I didn't become one because what I'm doing <laughs> now I think is even cooler. But nice. Um, two more things that I really, uh, uh, it was a dream, uh, was MIT and Caltech. Those two institutions were just, uh, so NASA, MIT, Caltech. And somehow, I don't know, randomly or accidentally or because these are the dreams that got realized that I remember, I ended up going from MIT to Caltech, NASA. So I was okay. um, doing oceanography as, as a postdoc at MIT, and there was this opportunity to come to JPL and work with this satellite that had been launched a few years earlier called Topix Poseidon that observed sea surface height from space. Okay. And sea surface height is like a dynamical boundary condition for the ocean. It tells you, it's like knowing low pressures and high pressures in the atmosphere, and then you can tell the winds that they're going to go around the low pressure and the high pressure. Same thing for sea surface height. If you know sea surface height, you can tell what the surface currents are. And the really cool thing that that we do is um, from space, you can only see part of the ocean circulation. You can't observe everything. You can see surface variables, depth integrated variables, and of course there's a sampling issue. Mm -hmm. So in order to make a complete story, you need to have uh, numerical circulation models 
Those are the really fun models that Braun and others at NASA Ames help us to run on the NASA supercomputer. That's, I was going to say, that's probably like the, the, the perfect transition almost was like, because I'm sure anybody listening, they're like, Braun and Dimitri, like, you know, you have one person working on a computer, one person, you know, looking at the Earth from space. How, how does that match together? Braun, do you so, want to have a go at it first? <laughs> go at it, sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, what brought you yeah. guys together? Well... <laughs> Well, NASA brought us together. I mean, nice. Dimitri was working uh, with the people at MIT on this thing that's called the MIT GCM, the, the MIT Global Circulation Model. Okay. And it does modeling of the weather, if you will, the weather of the ocean as opposed to of the, of the air. But it calculates a great number of things about... It's like temperatures and currents and temperatures stuff? Temperatures and speeds and more of the things than you could possibly imagine, quite frankly. Okay. Uh, Dimitri would be a much better source of <laughs> exactly what it does. But um, as he mentioned, you have the sampling problem. You don't have sensors everywhere on the Earth gathering exactly. data every minute. Mm-hmm. And so you have to essentially interpolate between observations. You know it was this temperature you know, on okay. June 21st. You know it was this temperature on June 22nd. What was it like in between? And you, and you mm-hmm. don't want to just draw a straight line. That's hardly yeah. uh, That's hardly what accurate. you see in so, real life. That's certainly not, and certainly not over the course of a full year. Right? You can't just draw a straight line between July and July and say that was the temperature that it was. Yeah, exactly. So uh, that's, of course, a drastic oversimplification. But the MIT GCM essentially applies all the known laws of physics, <laughs> the ocean, uh, climatology of oceanography, of whatever you want to call it, whatever ology you happen to like, to try to decide how you got from this point that you know about because you measured it to this other point that you know about because you measured it. And how did it, uh, what was it like in between? And so you can get a, a good model of the way the ocean works and what's going on at, at a very fine resolution, at least potentially a very fine resolution. But in order to do that, you have this very complicated computer program that, that I did not write. Let me make yes. it clear. Some other people wrote that. Um, but then you need to run it on a very large group of computers. I was going to say, I just can't put it on my PC at home. No. So it's we, we ran this model on typically 30,000. Yeah, we ran it, run it typically on 30,000, but the particular thing that, that we worked with Dimitri was, was 70,000 oh, wow. processors simultaneously. And we were trying to figure out both just how to get it to do that and how Mm -hmm. to get it to actually run faster as a result of doing that. And the part that I was particularly involved in was writing out the results. So you you calculate all these numbers, but then you want to save them so that later on you can analyze them. Or in our case in particular, we make movies out of them so you can see Oh, like animations and stuff. Yes, and very detailed ones. So... We have um, a piece of equipment called the Hyperwall, mm-hmm. which is essentially a big array of TV screens. And a single frame, a single moment in time is about a quarter billion pixels of imaging. And we have salt concentrations and temperatures and velocities and enormous amount of data that, that the model MIT GCM is producing and just storing it all and saving it all mm-hmm. is, a, is a much bigger task than you might think <laughs> offhand. Um, 
And so we needed to not only produce these numbers at some relatively fast rate, but then also to store all those numbers at, at that same rate, not slow down the calculation. And this was a, a whole team of people. I mean, I'm sitting here in this chair, but there's, of course, a, a sure. whole, whole bunch of people that were involved both in writing the code and in getting it to work. And then all the support people who you know, made the computers themselves of stay course, up for and so on and so on and so on. But uh, and, and so I, I was going to say then. So, Dimitri, is this just a matter of like you give Braun or, and you give you, the team like some raw data, some stuff that you do yeah, know, so, and then he works on that that model? So, and I, I, yeah, I'll answer that question, but first I, w- I want to go back to something that Braun said earlier and that I think is is a fa- fantastic segue into explaining uh, a little bit better what we do. So a line, mm-hmm. Braun said that our model is more complicated than a line, <laughs> and it is, but a line is a model. It's a model with two parameters. And let's say you have observations of that line, right? And there are all over the place, they have some noise, and then you try to adjust these two parameters, the the place where it crosses uh, the zero axis and its slope, and you try to adjust these two parameters in order to fit these mm-hmm. points as well as you can, because the observations have, have errors, right? Yeah. Uh, in a way, and 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 what a very efficient way of doing it, a very good way of doing it is is called least squares. You try to find the line that minimizes the distance between the observations and the line in a least squares sense. Okay, that is exactly what we do with satellite observations and with our model. Now, it's a hugely more complicated problem because. As Braun said, the, the model is the, the equations of the model are, are nonlinear as opposed to a line is, is linear. Um, there's a lot more observations, but the degrees of freedom of the model are hugely greater than the number of observations. So it's a so called hmm. underdetermined problem. So we're trying to fit a description of the large scale ocean circulation that passes to within some distance of the observations from space and also in situ. uh, There are instruments in the water, floats that profile the temperature and salinity. So that's kind of, so I like the the fact that Braun mentioned a line and I was waiting to, to pick up on that. Your second question, it was in terms of uh, how we operate. Yeah. And, uh, we have this uh, numerical model, which is called the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. It's actually a general circulation model, so MIT Sorry. GCM. <laughs> no, that's all right. Global is good because we do a lot of global well, things. Clo- I was pretty close. <laughs> you were pretty close. And, um, you know, we, we can actually run that thing on almost any platform. We can oh, run really? it on our laptop. We can run it uh, on workstations. However, to do really interesting problems where you, you know, the, the, the way that you run this model is you break up the ocean into little boxes of water, okay. right? And the more of these little boxes of water you have, the more realistic your model is. You're trying, you're capturing more and more of the physics of the ocean. And at some point, you can't just do it on your laptop. And mm-hmm. that's when you... Um, 
go to people like Braun and many, many, many others uh, at NASA Ames, the magicians, we call them, <laughs> nice. who uh, show us how to do it, uh, you know, uh, how to scale up that problem. That's the first thing that they help us with, which is just on its own is unbelievable. But the second thing that happens is once you've run that thing, you have no idea what's in it because there's so many numbers. Yeah. And there we also need help in figuring out how to look at those numbers. So the second thing that those magicians at NASA Ames do is help us to animate, cut, uh, look at the physics, uh, look at processes. You know, one one of the things I have to admit, you know, I, um, that they do is find all the problems, all the bugs, <laughs> all the all the things that are wrong with the model. They just when they look at it, hey, what's this? Hey, what's this? And uh, things that we we had no clue. Um, so it's really fun to work with them. It was a very good point. When you visualize something, when you make yeah. a movie out of the data, and then your you eyes these. look at it, your eyes are really good at picking out things that are bad. Whereas yeah. if you were looking at pages and pages of numbers, it would be almost impossible to tell that something was, was amiss or that something was yeah. good for that matter. So, uh, I mean, I work with the people that do the visualizations, although I personally don't do the visualizations. Uh, but I work very closely with those people, and, and, and so. I like to grab those visualizations, turn them into a GIF, and put them online. Yes. <laughs> well, we'll be happy to supply you with unending <laughs> images, I'm sure. <laughs> so I, I'd imagine sometimes it does it go kind of both ways. I I, I think of over at Ames, like the aeronautics model, where they have these theories of like how and the models in the supercomputer of how airflow works but then sometimes you put a plane in a wind tunnel to test it kind of check the answers in the back of the book is there a similar thing going on with you guys where yes you're using the model to find things that that for you Dimitri that you didn't know before but also I'm, I'm guessing that there's probably some real data from the sensors in the ocean that then can help modify and tweak that model as well yeah absolutely what I like to say when pe people come to me and they say, oh, you're a modeler. I said, no. And they say, oh, he's an observationalist. I say, you can't use a model without observations, and you cannot use observations without a model. And basically, you know, the way science works at kind of a very basic level is you look at data, you look at observations with your senses and augmented senses, you feel things around you, and then you try to explain them. And the way you explain them is you make models. And the models can be very simple. They can be a line, or they can be something conceptual, or something back of the envelope. Or they can be very complicated. They're nevertheless models. So with the models, what, what you want to be able to do is you want to be able to reproduce the observations that you see. So that's the very the very first thing. I mean, you you adjust, you change, you tweak your model, uh, you change the equations, you change the boundary conditions until you can reproduce the observations to uh, okay. the degree that you believe the observations. Yeah, um, as Dimitri I mean, said, the, the observations themselves may have errors too, so you got to be a little oh, bit careful. Okay. You don't want to necessarily reproduce them exactly. But. Exactly. And then once you have that, now you can make predictions. You can say, well, given this, I expect such and such uh, events to happen or such and such processes and then you can you can then go and make focus observations to see if it's happening or you can go and collect uh, uh, gather 
you know, observations that you had thrown away and hadn't used and, and use them to see if they support or if they disqualify, uh, invalidate uh, your hypotheses. So that's one way that models are used. The other way, of course, is to try to, you know, better understand the physics just mm -hmm. from a scientific curiosity yeah. perspective. You know, giving another shout out to another NASA center on the other side of the country over at NASA Goddard Space Flight Center. Uh, when I remember I visited there, and they also had a hyperwall and they had some visualization set up. And I'm thinking this is along the same lines where it was like they had the globe, they had Earth, and then they would dive down in their visualization and it would get into the ocean and had all these arrows and different things. And it was just showing the different currents and the different flows. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, very, the same thing. very similar sort of thing. It's exactly so. So, like, Actually, if, some of the very nice uh, Goddard visualizations uh, are, are based on uh, simulations that we did at uh, at NASA Ames. I don't know if... Yeah, I'd uh, imagine that is, they're all shared back and forth and that all these teams... So, yeah, and one of the things we would really like to do, uh, they have a very good atmospheric model uh, at Goddard. And obviously, I believe we have a very good oceanic model. With their powers it, combined. <laughs> it would be absolutely amazing to put the two together because some of the most important things, actually, the things that make, why are we looking for oceans on other planets, on, exactly. other, uh, on other moons? Because the, the thing that makes, you know, one of the key things that makes life possible is, you know, the, the presence of, of liquid, of ocean to start with, but in our case, since we don't live in the ocean, the interaction of the ocean with the atmosphere. And the ocean allows uh, climate to be moderate, meaning mm -hmm. that it doesn't get super hot and super cold. You know, if you, if you go to the desert, you'll realize at night it can freeze, even though in the daytime you can bake an egg, right? Yeah. So it's the, the, the oceans kind of store heat Mm -hmm. when it's very hot, release it when it's cold. So they kind of, they have a moderating impact on climate. At the same time, they do the same thing for other, uh, for chemical quantities like carbon dioxide. So uh, most of the carbon dioxide that, you know, that we might burn through fossil fuels and put in the atmosphere eventually will be absorbed by the ocean. So the ocean is, is helping the atmosphere from you know really exploding in 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 greenhouse gases for example and there's a, there's many other exa examples uh, and therefore what you really want to understand very well is the exchange of properties between the atmosphere and the ocean that kind of that that and therefore if we were able to put those two models together at very high resolution at very to make mm -hmm. them realistic uh you would gain a better understanding of how things are transferred from one fluid, the atmosphere, to the other, the ocean. So my mind Im immediately goes into like the practical application, or like if I was talking to my family in Ohio and explaining, like, "Oh, this is so cool." I mean, my brain first goes to like, you know, weather patterns, like hurricanes. You know, understanding the the ocean flow, understanding the um, the atmospheric flow, and computing this craziness and to understand it. Is there is there realistic applications in that way? Well, it's not quite the same thing as like 
predicting where a hurricane is going to make landfall. Yeah. This is much more retrospective okay. about you take already existing data and try to munge it and try to understand. But the application really is to gain deeper understanding of how these processes work. Hopefully you'll be able to use that to make predictions, but at the very least to be able to understand how and why things are occurring the way they are. So a lot of the data that, that we worked on was actually gathered several years ago. It's not, oh, really? not like what last month. But we're trying to use that to gain an increased understanding of, of the physics of the of the model, to, to refine the model, to make a, you know, a straight line is not so good. Maybe a curve isn't so good. Maybe it's <laughs> got to be really squiggly. Whatever that model might be, how things behave, mm-hmm. you want to refine the understanding of that. So uh, it's somewhat more theoretical than than yeah. you know, is it going to be raining tomorrow? That's not really the kind of kind of questions that we're trying to answer, but it is sort of more fundamental science about how and why do these things work. So, so Braun is absolutely correct that our specific investigations are are more theoretical, mm-hmm. but they are nevertheless important for weather patterns eventually in the sense that if you want to predict hurricanes and where they'll make landfall and whether they'll grow or they won't grow, you need to have a good understanding of air-sea interaction and mm-hmm. of mixed-layer depth, for example, the the amount of warm water that's uh, stored near the surface of the, uh, of the ocean. And one way that I uh, think of our work is a model, a numerical model, is a reservoir of knowledge. So you mm-hmm. basically, as you learn more and more about processes, you adjust things, change things in the model to make it a better representation of reality. Then these models, in turn, can be taken by more operational agencies like NOAA, for example, and used for uh, very practical applications. I would say that the um, the most practical applications that that we work on are not at that uh, at the edge. It's it's mm-hmm. uh, so what the the kind of model we're developing now will be used for pl- practical applications maybe in 10 to 15 years. Right now, really, we're pushing the envelope. Uh, we're exploring what's possible. We're learning. 10 years ago or even 25 years ago, we were also pushing the envelope, but with models that now are really easy to run uh, because of the increased computational power. So the the models that we're actually using in quasi-operational mm-hmm. capacity as part of uh, uh, one of the projects that I'm involved with, are models that were cutting edge 15 or 20 years ago. So it's there is this progression where you, you improve the model and then yeah. you start using it for uh, more practical applications. Yeah, there's certainly plenty of analogies one could paint. If you say the wind tunnels, if you're doing, shall we say, fundamental research in aerodynamics, you want to know about mm-hmm. turbulence, you want to know about streamlining. That's not the same thing as designing a car that gets good gas mileage. <laughs> but eventually you hope that because you did all these experiments to gain increased understanding of the fundamental principles behind it, eventually that knowledge will get incorporated into, as you say, more practical everyday applications. So no, you're not going to see the results of the stuff that we work on 
you know, on your local weather channel to next week, but uh, it is still a very important investigation. It's cool. So talk a little bit about what you guys see, you know, in in the near or in the future, looking like five years, ten years from now, what are you guys going to be sitting around working on? <laughs> what numbers are you going to be crunching? Or, or, or where would you like to see things go, I guess? I'd like to be retired. Myself, but, <laughs> We're but not going to let you retire, Braun. You're too good. <laughs> I have, as soon as my kids graduate from college, then I'll think about retiring. <laughs> until, until my kids graduate and my mortgage is paid, I think I'm kind of stuck. <laughs> um, <laughs> Come on, you like working with us. <laughs> yes, you're right, I do. It gets me out of bed in the morning. Yes. <laughs> or sometimes in the afternoon. Uh, <laughs> right now... I really see the thing that Dimitri mentioned, which is trying to couple this to yeah. other pieces. This is an ocean model, and it's very large. We're doing whole Earth simulations, right? Not just yeah. This isn't know, small scale. Not we're, small scale. We're, we're doing, doing the, big, we're doing the big things. The big thing. And as Dimitri said, you you do this by essentially cutting the ocean up into little boxes and studying the boxes. And right now, the boxes are about a kilometer on a side. Which, when you're talking about the whole Earth, that's a lot of boxes. I was going to say. <laughs> and uh, we just recently did a simulation where the boxes were, they were 100 meters to me? No, 250 meters on a uh, side. And 25? Oh, that's right, 25. But that one didn't work for some reason, right? <laughs> no, it did. It did. <laughs> well, but in any event, but, but it's not yeah. over the whole Earth, just over, over a small no. portion. Okay. So increasing the resolution, you know, more processors, better uh, resolving of the... Uh, of all of these factors, that's certainly a place, but that's sort of a uh, quantitative difference rather than a qualitative one. It's the coupling of it with atmospheric models or with uh, ice mm -hmm. and so forth. That uh, Dimitri's heavy into, into ice, so ice is nice. <laughs> but nice. Uh, that that I think is uh, the direction that you want to thing that will be new and interesting, if you will. So, so Dimitri, as long as I have you here on the phone, <laughs> yes. I, could you explain to me about the difference between coupling with a Goddard model and, say, the MM5 or 6 or whatever <laughs> they're up to now at NOAA is? I mean, because that's a, a coupling with land. This is water, a good way to get him to answer that yeah. email you yeah, sent. Yeah, it is. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, there, there's no difference. There's no difference, really. I, I want to beg to defer on, on at least on one point. Uh, as you increase resolution, things change. If, if you want to think of the ocean, not in space time, but in frequency wave number, and those are big words. That, uh, <laughs> frequency has to do with wavelengths in time, and a wave number is, is wavelengths in space, mm -hmm. uh, you, you can, you can uh, draw bubbles, if you like, bubbles of different processes that occupy different length, lengths and time scales. With one kilometer, what we're capturing very well is what's called geostrophic eddies. So there are eddies, there, there are motions that feel the rotation of the Earth. Uh, so in the atmosphere, these would be the storm systems, if you like, which have thousand kilometer scale. In the ocean, the scale because the fluid has a different density, and also the stratification, the fluid, and also the 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 stratification from of the density from the surface to the bottom of the ocean, the scales are much smaller. They they range from like ten to a hundred kilometers. The scales that feel the rotation of the Earth, that is. 
And with one kilometer grid, we're capturing those incredibly well, which is very nice because before that, we had to create band-aids because we could not really resolve these in our models. We had these band-aids; they're called parametrizations that would try to approximate how these things、mm-hmm. would work if there's a lot of them. But these so-called parametrizations, they just Don't do justice to the complexity、uh, of the circulation of the ocean. So now, with one kilometer, we're, we're capturing these features. But then there's other bubbles that we're not capturing. There is bubbles.、Uh, there's something called submesoscale processes. There's something called、uh, internal waves. We're starting to touch on those. We're starting to see them. In the same way that ten years ago、uh, we could start to see eddies in our simulations, but we were not fully resolving them. So we were kind of in this no man's land. Where should we be、mm-hmm. representing them, or sh-、uh, you know, parametrizing them, or should we trust these crude representations in the model are useful? So now we are. There is a bunch of processes that. Uh, we're not resolving, and that we are st- still representing in a crude way in the model. So, as you increase resolution, you don't just—it's、uh, not just more of the same. There's different、mm-hmm. processes that kick in. So that's kind of really fun、uh, <laughs> and and instructive. Where where are you going to go from here? I mean, I, I agree with you.、Uh, I'm reminded of a, of a uh, maxim uh, of computer science or whatever that. Uh, a factor in ten in quantity is a change in quality. Okay, exactly. When, you, when something gets ten times bigger, things、yeah. are different. Even if it's <laughs> sort of no judgment,、sense. but different. <laughs> but well, better, small,、yeah. bigger, better. I mean, when your computer、worse. is suddenly ten times faster than it used to be, it's not just that you can do the old things ten times faster.、Yeah. You can now suddenly do new things that you couldn't have done before. Oh wow! And、exactly. so, in the same way. I think Dimitri is saying it's not just that you can see the same old things better, but there are these new things that you didn't even know were there, or that you knew were、right. there but couldn't see couldn't before. But now suddenly your magnifying glass is ten times more powerful than it used to be, and you can actually see these processes. So that's a very good point, and, and thanks to Dimitri for correcting my、yeah. uh, <laughs> offhand comment. Well,、uh, like I said earlier, a model. Makes predictions. So one of the things we're super interested in is we're going to make some predictions, and NASA is actually launching a very nice satellite、uh, in 2020 or 2021 that's、nice. called Surface Wave Ocean Topography. We're going to make some predictions, and that satellite is going to tell us. Whether our predictions are correct, and then that that you know that's so that's、uh, and <laughs> also allows to change the model in order to better represent what the observations see. In terms of quasi、uh, practical applications, a, a couple of things that I'm really interested in and I'm involved with is、uh, application of these simulations. To study interaction of the ocean with ice,、mm-hmm. and when I say ice, I, I mean both sea ice, which is、uh, ice that forms when the air is very cold, which is、uh, formed from ocean water、mm-hmm. and floats and cracks, and it's actually really beautiful,、um, both、uh, in real world and also in the simulations,、um, <laughs> but also the and 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 that sea ice is important because. It 
it's like uh, think of it as a piece of styrofoam on top of the ocean. So where that yeah. sea ice is, it inhibits exchange between the atmosphere and the ocean. When you remove it, you start exchanging things, and that's important to know for for many processes uh, that have to do, for example, with regulation of the of the weather mm-hmm. uh, patterns and of uh, and and of uh, how warm or cold uh, the atmosphere is. But also in terms of biology, uh, as soon as you remove the sea ice, uh, some biology that wasn't there can you know start to grow. Mm-hmm. In terms of uptake of carbon, so sea ice is important for that. A second type of ice we're very interested in is land ice, and that is ice that is formed by accumulation from snow. Uh, if you have a region where the amount of snow that falls every year is a little bit more than the amount of snow that melts every year. You form what's called glaciers or ice sheets. And uh, these ice sheets are covering, for example, Greenland and Antarctica, and mm-hmm. they're on land. If these were to melt and to return to the ocean, or if they were, uh, you know, we assume that they're in some sort of steady state and the amount of snow that falls on them every year is about the same as the amount of mm-hmm. ice that melts at the edges. That's good. That means the sea level won't change. If they start melting a little faster, well, we care about that because yeah. it means sea level will rise and we need to know about it so we can uh, you know, take action in terms of protecting coastal environments from erosion and, and other things. So I, th- I think that and also the, the interaction of the ocean currents with biology, ecology, and carbon cycle, those are some of the things that really interest me. Everybody should stay tuned for more to come, especially in 2020, as, as the work gets further complicated and Bron here is trying to kick his kids out of, <laughs> out of the house. <laughs> so... <laughs> They're just going to come back. <laughs> so for folks that are listening that want to get more information, we're on Twitter at NASA Ames. We use the hashtag NASA Silicon Valley. But until we change the podcast name to NASA California, <laughs> then uh, that's what we're using in the meantime. But thanks a lot, Bron, for coming on over. And Dimitri, this has been awesome. Thanks for calling in from beautiful Pasadena. Thank you very much. All right. Well, thanks a lot, guys. Sure thing. Thanks.